Welcome to the Marion Consort Podcast. I'm Rory McCleary. Today's edition ties in with our new digital project, Cult, which uses music dedicated to the Virgin Mary as a prism to examine the representation of women in Renaissance art and culture. I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by Dame Marina Warner, eminent academic, historian, author, and expert in this field, and also by two of our wonderful Marion Consort singers, soprano Lucy Cox and mezzo-soprano Sarah Ann Champion. So it's wonderful to be joined today by eminent academic and author Marina Warner, as well as by Lucy and Sarah, two of our wonderful singers, for a discussion around you know, some of the issues which surround the music that we perform really regularly with the Marian Consort, but which I think too seldom we consider you know, some of the kind of the deeper history and the issues behind the texts and, and the issues that they, that they bring up. Um, I wonder perhaps if we might start with you, Marina, just talking us through how we got to this point that in the kind of in the mid to late 16th century, we have this situation where we have all of these texts, uh, devotional texts in honor of the Virgin Mary being sung by men to men in church services for men with very few women present. But of course, there's some there's a woman absolutely at the center of it. But in a way, you know, there's this there's this strange paradox around her because she is both the virgin and the mother, and also the lover of the, of the Song of Songs? Well, the idealization of Mary is a form of idealization that really does exclude almost all other women. I mean, there are one or two saints or great figures in the Bible who are allowed to have a connection to her, usually as her antitypes, as her prototypes um, coming before her. So, um, some Miriam, for example, Moses' sister sings a song of triumph and praise. And so she's sometimes, because of her name, also associated with the Virgin Mary. But on the whole, it's a very exclusionary system. Although Christianity had fewer taboos around female bodies, surprisingly, than some religions. So, for example, there was never a, never a ban on menstruating women entering the church which is not the case with some other religions. But on the whole, as many women of my generation argued, the figure of the Virgin Mary was not an emancipatory figure for women. She didn't hold up an example that would empower women to feel more equal and active. She was a figure of submissive acceptance of destiny, a figure of maternity, And above all, of course, she manages the maternity, the biological role, without the carnality that goes, that was the sign of sin for the way Catholicism had interpreted Augustine's interpretation of the fall. But now I think things have shifted a bit. I think, I mean, the the church has lost ground very, very dramatically. Um, on, on moral uh, as being a moral arbiter, especially in matters of sexuality, and I think that has actually shows in a shift towards the Virgin Mary, interest in the Virgin Mary from people across a very wide spectrum. And I'd say that the revival of interest in both her iconography and her music and other forms of devotion to her, which a lot of women are showing, there are a lot of art historians working on images of Mary and you, are, you know, with your wonderful voices, are interpreting these songs of praise to her without feeling that somehow this is abetting some dreadful system of suppression of women. There's a way in which the loosening of the sexual 
um, power of the church over people's bodies through their own transgressions has actually helped free the Virgin Mary from that particular emphasis in her significance. She's now much more associated in this millennium with mercy, with the poor, with justice and so forth. Thank you for that incredibly uh, interesting and, use, and useful background. And uh, as you say, for us, there is this bizarre tension, I think, sometimes, because also we're performing these works, which would originally, of course, have been intended for really liturgical performance, be that either strictly as part of the liturgy in a church service, but also, you know, in some kind of devotional context. But like so much uh, Western classical music that was originally written with religious connotations in mind, we are taking it out of that space and often into concert halls, at least in theory, you know, whether they be yes, concerts yes. in churches. Um, but so there's, there's that added dimension. So I suppose Lucy and Sarah, it, it's very easy, I, I certainly find, for us to sometimes forget a little bit um, because we come across these texts so often, uh, you know, they're so quotidian for us. The, the context of them and the history behind them and the, the real meaning of them. Is that fair that you find kind of sometimes when singing these texts, that sort of, you know, they sometimes lose a little bit of the meaning and we need to kind of step back sometimes and kind of, you know, rethink that and, and find it again. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you might have to choose. One of you, one of you, yes. Question. <laughs> How about Lucy? Do you, want to, do you want to speak first? Sure. So um, I think, one of the lovely things about singing this music is that it has this incredible poetic text. And when you know what the translation of that is, um, it's really easy, even, even knowing what the words mean, to be able to, to take them out of their original context mm -hmm. and apply them to the space that you're in. As you say, if you're performing to an, an audience rather than to a congregation, it can feel very different. Um, and the way that I think I approach performing certainly is different when I'm performing, say, at one of the Catholic churches in London, or even in, in an Anglican church, and when I'm performing in a concert to an audience. And I think my own interpretation of those texts is different in those different contexts. Well, what, would the, what is the difference for you, if you can sort of pinpoint it? Because, because just, to, just very quickly, the, um, the, manifest, the manifest richness of these, of these images is, is erotic rather than... I mean, you wouldn't immediately think of a virgin mother when you listen to these words. My love is a dove and I shall lie all night between his breasts. I mean, this kind of thing doesn't really immediately bring to mind. So I, I, I suppose the difference to me is that really often in, in concerts, I'm not at all thinking about religion or, or the Virgin Mary or, or any of these things. Whereas in, um, say, a, a Catholic church service setting, I'm aware that these words to the people that I'm singing for um, are, are very... Um, the meaning of them has been very much changed over, over the centuries and, and it's got this kind of huge history behind it. And the response of the people that are listening might be very different. It's, it's also always interesting to think about how, how much the congregation or the audience might know about what the words mean that you're singing because not many people speak Latin these days. So there's probably a huge difference between an, an audience member or a congregation member that's following along every word with the translation and the person who's just sitting there and enjoying the beauty of the music and the lines. To jump in, um, I uh, have a very strong memory of singing um, a setting of the text, but it was in the English translation, um, and it was the uh, Rise Up, My Love. It was a, a long time ago, and I wasn't actually aware where this text 
came from. And my interpretation of it was uh, in the kind of very romantic sense. Um, and I didn't realize that it had, again, all of this uh, uh, association uh, and religious association um, uh, with it, with the Virgin Mary. And kind of now looking back at that memory, I think, well, goodness, how, how these texts can be and have been interpreted very differently depending on, as Lucy said, the setting in which you're singing it um, and, and the building um, and thinking about who, who is listening. Um, and I just find that so interesting that you have to have so much knowledge of the background of these texts and, and how they have been changed and uh, how different people perceive them um, to inform your performing of them. One of the things that I find rather sad, actually, about the way contemporary writing is going, um, both fiction and non-fiction, is that this text is absolutely primarily figurative. I mean, it's uh, allegorical and figurative. It doesn't, even though you say, come, my love, my fair one, come away, it could be just simply a lover's invocation. But the reason it's in the Bible <coughs> is that it was never taken to be simply a lover's invocation. It was meant to be, you know, a very complex allegory about how God loved Israel to begin with in the Old Testament days, and then how, you know, Christ loved his church, and then how the soul loves Christ, so that the beloved is actually the human soul. Um, and, you know, the, all these layers of allegorical meaning were just simply evident for that for the congregations you're talking about. I mean, it wasn't, you didn't have to be learned because that was the way it had been justified forever and the way it was understood. So, but now actually it's quite hard to get um, readers and writers to write simply figuratively in allegory. It's much more literal writing than there used to be. Mina, do you think it's, um that the allegorical nature of the text is, and, and the, the fact that it has all of these potential interpretations is part of the reason that it's, it's so beloved out of all of the things in the Old Testament. You, you have so many settings of this music and because of the way that, that Christianity has been in terms of um, sexuality and um, sexual desire being viewed as sinful, that perhaps that meant that, that these texts were given more importance. Yes, I think so. I think that the the way they'd been interpreted, you could think that it was almost a kind of deliberate way of smuggling into the general landscape sheer beauty and pleasure. But I think that it wasn't deliberate. I think it was the unconscious energy in us to seek for beauty and to find a kind of haven in beauty. And I think your music and your singing you know, definitely enhances that. And actually, the versions that I heard, you know, are not actually erotic at all. I mean, they have, they're incredibly peaceful and kind of, I mean, the harmony has this effect on one of taking one out to another place. And I th so I think you're right. I think people that survived, and actually in itself, in the Bible, it's a survival, because it's thought that predominantly, I mean, it's not one authored person. It's thought, and though Solomon was given credit for it as having written it, but it's a collection of the love songs of a nomadic people with all the imagery of their 
of their vineyards and their flocks and so forth. And for them at the time, they probably were literal, the flocks and the vineyards, the little foxes and so forth, and the, the doves in the cleft of the rock. This was a description of their landscape. But by the time it gets to Ferrara or to London, <laughs> um, you know, we don't have, well, we have doves, but perhaps not in the clefts of rocks. <laughs> I think now might be a good time uh, after what you mentioned, Marina, about the layers of allegory in the Song of Songs um, to, to jump in and, and think about a, a slightly different as- aspect of, of the, some of the music that we've been performing um, for this programme, which is this kind of this cognitive dissonance sometimes between the music and the text and also where it's from, such so as the, mu- the musical text. I'm thinking particularly of this Lassus Mass, which in and of itself is a very beautiful piece of music. And the only hint as to the, the origins of, the, of, this, of this music, the musical model, is the title of the mass, the Missa entre vous filles, um, but which we know, and it's likely, I think, that certainly the musicians performing it in the 16th century would have known, was based on um, an extraordinarily lewd and misogynistic chanson. Um, and so this issue then of kind of reconciling, and it's a very, you know, a very old and very much debated issue of reconciling, you know, the beauty of music against some of the more distasteful aspects of its origins and the beliefs of the people who created it, including um, Clemens Nonpapa, who was the author of that chanson, who was also an ordained priest, but clearly held some, I think, certainly to our morality, our modern morality, rather distasteful views about women. It's very mysterious, I found. I mean, I, I had not, I didn't know either about parody masses or or this poem or this folk song. Um, I'm afraid that with age, I've become very inured to such things. <laughs> and, uh, it's very, I mean, such a, an attitude to young girls is absolutely endemic in um, medieval culture, but perhaps even more in French culture. So, um, and actually it's lasted probably until, I mean, some bits of Colette, you know, the 19th, 20th century, uh, she, mm, you know, she writes about girls in that kind of way, but with great relish. So it, it lasts. I mean, the sense of the power of the young girl's body and its, and its overmastering power and, and the fierceness of desire that it causes, that's, that's a you know, very perennial theme. But the, but the blasphem, blasphemous side of it, the, the smuggling of it into musically into a religious context is utterly fascinating to me. Um, and I, it's, it's, it reminds me of the marginalia in manuscripts at, a certain, at an earlier period, of course, you know, where you have the actual gospel and then next to the gospel you have, I don't know, a kind of, you know, a clown mooning or, <laughs> or, a, or, a, <laughs> or a, you know, a, a kind of fierce be, um, bestiary of different kind of monstrous animals. Well, the you think si- the monks, the monks are kind of doodling and, uh, you know, on the side while they write their careful manuscripts um, of the sacred words, they then have this release into the margins. The same is true of, of music manuscripts, in fact, and there are a, a few that have some quite extraordinary and, and lewd drawings um, in them, again, yes. ag- against sacred music. But it, it, I guess it's also symptomatic of... Um, the human nature of the, you know, both the creators and consumers of this music that they would kind of, you know, um, have um, the, you know, particular attitudes and, and, th- and thoughts about that kind of thing. But I suppose Lucy and, and Sarah, mm-hmm. 
Um, we, we, I mean, were you aware of the context of the, of the music before we started performing it? Um, and does it colour your view of the Lassus Mass, which, you know, objectively is a very beautiful piece of church music? I was listening on the recording as I wasn't uh, in that particular uh, movement. And I just remember sitting and thinking, gosh, this is really beautiful. How lovely. What a lovely mass. And then you uh, sent the link and said, oh, this is what it's based on. And I, I read the text and <laughs> the translation and thought, oh, my goodness. Mm. Why, why, would, um, why would he choose to, to do that? And, and it must have been... I don't know, perhaps it was a great in-joke for uh, the other people listening or uh, maybe to try and gain some sort of reaction. But I just couldn't, yeah, I couldn't quite fathom the thought process behind going into that and then having this beautiful melody, which people would absolutely have recognised immediately and, and linked to the original text and, and then put it in a, in, into a church, into a church, into a mass setting. Just, yeah quite unbelievable <laughs> knowing that then does it color your view do you think it's any less beautiful the lassus mass no i don't think it's any less beautiful taint is the wrong word it doesn't it doesn't taint the beauty of it at all but it just opens your awareness and makes you think it's it's more about the choices what i just wonder why i would love to be able to have a conversation and say what were your thoughts behind this i mean there is a strain in 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 catholicism and catholic theology that actually wants to emphasize the goodness of all creation. I mean, it's an incarnational religion. And so that incarnational side should really predominate over the ascetic, chaste side, which condemns sexuality. Because, I mean, there are countervailing voices saying, no, God created man and woman in his image. And that image includes everything to do with nature and you know, the, the, the le- and that Jesus himself often speaks about how the least of things is as important. You know, there is providence in the fall of a sparrow, that the sparrow is as important as the lily and so forth. That there's an equality in the beauty of creation. And I mean, it's, it's not impossible. It, it, I mean, there were different pockets of theology and so forth in, in Italy, but in Italy there were lots of thinkers who were, you know, quite, quite enterprising. I mean, there was a whole movement in in Bologna, I think it was, or Padua, um, which didn't believe in original sin. They got into trouble, they got condemned, but they didn't believe in original sin, and that was about the 15th century. Anyway, but it's, it's possible that Lassus was kind of trying to say, actually, human, human congress, human beauty, that does belong in this place in some way. I mean, I, that might be casuistic of me. It might just be pure mischief, what, or just uh, or, the convenience of the, or the convenience of the tune. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, not not to sort of, um, I think, sort of condone, but I, th- I think for Lassus, because he was an absolutely prolific composer, and there are other examples which are offensive in other ways. Um, there's a mass based on a very anti-Semitic song, and there's another one based on a very scatological. Um, popular song it may simply have been as you say an act of mischief or just an act of necessity that he had to write a mass and he desperately needed a good tune and that was the one he remembered (laughs) um but uh, yeah but as as i say that's not to excuse because it's interesting that those were kind of in the zeitgeist it's it's an interesting thing i mean it it does sound a lot as though it could have been a strange sort of 16th century banter but i think it, it maybe comes back as well to what marina was saying about um 
how listening to some of this music, it doesn't sound erotic and how maybe by transferring this music into the art form of sacred polyphony, you sort of strip away the eroticism and somehow it comes out purified and calming and meditative. Um, and maybe the original tune isn't as important as we think. Actually, I have a question. Is, are there any solos in the music? I think the answer is no, just because of the, the nature of the, of the composition, because there are, I mean, I can only think of one or two specific instances and they're quite late, kind of early 17th century um, moments in polyphonic pieces where you hear a, a solo voice by itself for any kind of meaningful a, length I, of time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that the eroticism is somehow sublimated is because you are actually hearing this wonderful harmony of a group of voices, because that suggests, you know, it suggests consort and uh, you know, concerted unity. I mean, even when there's, you know, there's the kind of dissonance and things, it's, it's still all together. And I think that has, I mean, that's what I found listening, that that had a just an astonishing, like sort of deep meditation or something. <laughs> astonishing calming effect um, even even while the music was doing rather you know interesting and unexpected things I think in answer to, to your question though if it was a question I, I, I think partly it may also and this is a whole other can of worms that I think Sarah and Lucy could speak to probably for a long time um, it but about the the nature of the performance practice the modern performance practice of performing this renaissance music which has tended to be quite ascetic there's this sort of tradition from the 1960s and 70s, really, which started in this country, in the UK, with semi-professional and professional ensembles performing this music um, and rediscovering it, in a way, which has tended towards this quite emotionless um, sound, this very, uh, what the Italians would call kind of voce bianchi, you know, that sort of idealised children's voices having no emotional tone in them, that it's purity prized over any kind of, you know, emotional mm. content, which again is, is interesting because that sort of ties in with this view of of Mary, of course, as this kind of, you know, figure of purity who's not allowed to have any, or, you know, but then she does have this kind of more sort of earthly mm -hmm. presence as well. But um, yeah, is that fair then that maybe Sarah and Lucy, that part of this maybe comes from the kind of the style of performance rather than the music itself? You can change a lot in your delivery of a piece of music. Absolutely. I think um, I've done um, various workshops and reading about how some of this music might have been performed and it talks about how the upper lines might have ornamented things um, and how much more florid than what's actually written down on the manuscript it, it might have sounded. Individual voices might have had more freedom. We often have a conductor, not always, but, but that can make a huge difference to how much of an artistic choice each individual singer has. And it's, it's hard to know how close our interpretation, this, this white sound that Rory talks about, actually would have been to how things were sung. I also think it's interesting that there is still this concept that, uh, as you said, this white sound is is pure and that the female voice, um, which as you grow older can develop into a much bigger sound, is not taboo necessarily, but definitely in, in some uh, in some choirs and for some audiences, they don't want to hear that type of sound singing this and whether that has this less pure sound. I mean, what does that mean? That's very interesting. That's very interesting because if you think about the way the choirs of angels are depicted or the musician angels are depicted in paintings, they're very epicene, they're very undeveloped, they're very immature, they look like, I mean, they're androgynous, clearly androgynous, but they're not they're not fully sexed, either male or female. And actually, 
you know, so that in a way you're quite right that the sound is aiming at some approximation of and of angels. Angels are a bit different from Mary. And the, the assembly, the, the idea of the multitude of voices, the polyphony itself is more angelic than the single figure of Mary. And uh, yes, and, and for, you know, from, from my part, it, it seems like sometimes, yes, audiences are kind of sometimes almost intimidated by actually that idea of sort of, especially, yeah, you're right, it's, it's very, actually, it's very sexist by female voices and by this idea of kind of, you know, um, a female voice that is full of emotion and expression and it, it, as you say is in some way quote unquote mature and people do really seem to fetishize i mean a piece like not in this program but something like the allegri miserere the words that people most often come up to describe that and what they prize about it what they like about it is is purity you know which i, I find extraordinary because there's so many other things you know the skill and you know technical facility of the singer and the beauty of the sound but it's always it comes back to that word and i don't know why we obviously, as a as a species, are sort of you know psychologically, um, I think, yeah, hidebound by that a little bit. But that's a, I mean, there's a, been a cultural change, hasn't there? Because the men used to, well now there's a lot of countertenors and so forth, and people are liking the voice again. But um, for a long time, the soprano voice wasn't, or the soprano register wasn't actually excluded exclusively used by women. I mean, it was. I mean, when I first heard Handel's you know, Julius Caesar, I was very surprised. <laughs> I mean, I was used to Italian opera as a sort of verismo that the you know the the young man is a tenor, the older man is a baritone or bass, and and the you know so this was very strange to me that, that the upper register was being used for nobility for just expressing nobility. Well, I think this pro probably brings us on to um, the the next sort of um, area of discussion. I'm wondering if we should perhaps um, get on to, to talking about this incredibly important figure. And I'm embarrassed to say I had not heard of her until relatively recently, Raffaella Aliotti um, and her music, uh, which for me certainly was a real discovery. Um, I don't know, Lucy and Sarah, if you'd come across her before um, and what you thought of her music. I'd heard of her, but I'd never sung any of her work. And it's it's really interesting to sing. It's uh, it's very joyful. She mm. uses really beautiful lines. Um, and her use of dissonance is really interesting. There are a, a lot of places where there are unexpected clashes that come out of nowhere. Mm. And um, yeah, it's fascinating to sing. It's lovely. Do we know how many nuns would have sung it before? I mean, do, do we know how many voices she set it for? The ensemble that she wrote for at the um, Augustinian convent of San Vito in Ferrara um, apparently had 23 nuns, according to one contemporary um, source, but quite a few of them would have played instruments. Um, one of the interesting things for me, um, sort of in a kind of academic sense, is that she writes this music and it's scored for the conventional choral disposition, which includes lots of male voices. Um, and whether that's because because it was being published, um, she had an awareness of the kind of, you know, the need to be commercial and for it to sell and therefore it needed to be um, in the mould of, of other similar music. Or um, whether it's just that that's how she learned to compose. Um, but I think probably at the convent, the lower voices would have been sung by women, but also played on instruments because we know that they played the trombone and the dulcian and the lute and the organ and the harpsichord. And that she was, you know, th thought of in incredibly highly by some of um, her very esteemed contemporaries um, as a musician and composer. Sarah, what did you think? Was this the first time you'd come across her music? 
It was, yeah. And the same as Lucy, it's, it's really enjoyable to sing. I find it very interesting, as you said, that she wrote in the, the conventional way to include the lower voices as well, even though she wouldn't have had those voices at her disposal when she was writing. But if you if you had given me the piece of music without the kind of composer's name, quite rightly, I wouldn't have been, you know, I wouldn't have said, oh, this is this is different. Um, I think she's obviously got her own her own style of writing. It's definitely different to the other kind of more usual repertoire in its style. I do just wonder, it, it was very, I thought it was very clever of her to to do that, which has ensured that we still have it today. Because, you know, perhaps <laughs> a, a lot of other music that maybe was written by women might not have used those voices as they wouldn't have had them at their disposal and therefore wasn't put into wider circulation and we don't have it today. So we kind of can't know how much women were writing. Um, and I think a lot of other female composers are always looked at from that era, sorry, are always looked at as something different something outlying something not normal because it was predominantly or or the music that was published was predominantly by by men and that was perceived as the the right way of doing things does the convent still exist i think the church still exists the church of san vito but i don't think um that, that the convent still survives but well, there aren't very many nuns left anywhere except in india actually it's something that's sort of interesting for the context of, of Raphael's life. And that is that actually the religious life gave you access to education. And so quite a lot of women wished to become nuns because there was a modicum of power. If you rose in the hierarchy of a convent, there was power. Um, there was a little bit more autonomy over money. You were still under the jurisdiction of a bishop. In fact, there were many struggles between abbesses and bishops. Um, for control of their finances. But they had a little bit more control than an, than a wife would have had, I mean, an ordinary wife. And they had, above all, this access to education, which was really only available to the children of, of, the, of nobility otherwise. I mean, you did have to have a dowry, so you weren't always able to become a nun, um, or you could become a servant nun without a dowry if you were a foundling. I, well, I think everything you said very much applies to, from from what I have read um, to Rafaela Ariati because certainly it seems like she had a very kind of noticeable um, and prodigious musical talent at a very young age, and San Vito, the the convent being particularly famed for its music, that was a place that she could go and could really develop that talent in a way that you know it wouldn't just become a kind of a sort of a hobby or a pastime and she could really devote herself to it. Vivaldi wrote for that school of young girls. At the Pietà, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was a sort of comparable, that was a chance for those girls, which they wouldn't have had if they'd been at home being married off by their parents to the people the parents wanted. And I, yeah, I think Sarah's absolutely right. I'm very guilty, of course, of kind of um, talking about uh, Aliotti as something different because of her gender, when actually her music is... Well, I would say, very, you know, very much in the same vein as, and, you know, very much the equal to, and, you know, as interesting and as noteworthy as any um, other late 16th century Italian composer. I think what, what is really interesting, though, is actually her choice of texts in this publication, because at first glance, to me, they seem to be pretty standard, you know, a selection of kind of some song of songs, um, some strictly um, Marian texts, 
um, some penitential and some kind of specifically occasional, um, you know, festival settings and seasonal settings. But actually delving under the surface, it's really interesting comparing things like the, the two different Egofros Campi settings, the one by Clemens non Papa, and then mm. Aliotti's, which actually includes a verse from the original, which Clemens excises, so that Clemens's is exclusively about the female beloved viewing her. Whereas Aliotti seems to rebalance that by talking about sons as well as daughters. So the sons are like the wood of the apple tree, as well as the daughters being being like the lily and and being present as well. Mm. And of course, the the, um, mm. the Congratulamini, which I think is a fantastic piece, is um, is speaking from the point of view of of Mary. And I don't know, Lucy and Sarah, if you've come across any other pieces from this period where that is the case. The Magnificat is the famous, obvious example yes. of that. The, the Congratulamini is, um, is based on the Magnificat. And the Magnificat um, is actually um, an example of this cross-referencing to the Old Testament, because it's origin- a lot of it originally is sung by Hannah when she discovers that she's about to have, that though she thought she couldn't have children, she is now going to have Samuel. And Samuel prefigures Christ the prodigious Samuel, the child who is so wise and clever and prophetic, is pref- prefigures Jesus. Um, so Mary reprises Hannah's, Mary who's now pregnant, because she, met, she sings the Magnificat, as you know, when she meets Elizabeth and they're both pregnant. And um, Mary sings this song in honor of her fruitfulness, which is borrowed from Hannah. Well, it's a, it's a strange one to sing because when you sing that text, you're putting yourself into that person's place. And of course, we're really aware of the, the problematic parts of these texts and how what you're celebrating are things that men value from women. So submissiveness and fertility and purity um, and gratefulness and taking on your duty with a smile. <laughs> um, but, but also in order to sing it um, in, in a way that you feel that people can connect to, you need to really try and get in, try and, and get into those feelings as, as well. So it, it can be a strange one for me when I'm when I'm singing it. it. It's a praise song in praise of herself too, which is quite strange. Yes, and that's that almost makes it easier because at least you can feel that in some way she's empowered in the context of her time. She's, although this is only in the context of what other people can gain from her. Um, she still has now become beloved and blessed amongst all women and mm. at, at, at the height of what a woman can be in that context. Being very cynical for a moment, do you think perhaps that aspect of it being a kind of Mary praising herself, is that actually just because it's men very cack-handedly writing about women in this context where there are no women? And is that a result, you know, in the same way that sometimes in literature you get men writing, you know, very suspicious dialogue um, f- for women, which, you know, is, it feels very inauthentic, inauthentic, rings very hollow. I mean, there's a tremendous sort of difficulty in disentangling the voices of the past in the texts that we have. I tend not to wish to eliminate women's ability to enter texts. I mean, actually, one of the reasons that I'm very interested in folklore and fairy tales and so forth is that this is an area where you can see women actively at work. Compilation of the Bible obviously was done by men. These are men's texts. But the traces, the traces and memories 
Um, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't particularly hold up this one, the idea of, because this is a, a conventional form, the praise song. But um, I think that the Song of Songs definitely carries what could be recognizably folk law motifs in which you hear how women desired in the past. I don't think that you can just ascribe that imagery straight off to, I mean, I know you were asking about the Magnificat in particular, or this particular uh, text, but I think, you know, I, 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 I think we have, we have echoes and glimmers and, and yeah, perhaps sort of harmonics of women, <laughs> they're there. You have to open your ears um, to catch them. But it, 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 we haven't been entirely written out of the, of the record. And is that perhaps why, as viewers and listeners and, and musicians um, and observers, we're, we're drawn to, to those particular aspects of, of these kind of biblical texts? Is it for exactly that reason? Because they contain these kind of um, echoes and memories, these vestigial traces of something which isn't there otherwise. Yes, I think, yes, they, the, this, the Song of Songs definitely escapes from the general mood of the Bible. I, mean, I, I used to sort of play, you know, Sibylline Lees with the Bible and see if every time I opened it, the word smote <laughs> appeared as God punished Israel. <laughs> so this is, I mean, and Raphaela here has definitely, if this is, I didn't realize that this was a single, as it were, composition of hers, a kind of publication. I didn't realize that. I thought you'd selected um, so that's really interesting. She she selected, and she selected. There is no smiting, no no Lord God of battles. No, it's it's all it's either penitential text, and maybe that's again um, because they sit better in terms of being set to music. You know, there's always a Monday a Monday in explanation as well as a kind of a more um, more interesting one. But um, but yeah, penitential text, lots of Marian devotional texts, um, and then some occasional um, kind of season, seasonal ones. Um, but again, that might be because that's what people who bought these prints were, were after, and her publisher um, recommended that, um, or she, has, you know, herself um, was particularly interested in, in these texts and thought they were, um, you know, of interest to set to music. Um, but um, I find myself, yes, um, problematized now because I'm worrying that I, in talking about uh, Aliotti, I'm doing exactly what Sarah said of kind of making her an outlier, um, but. I, I, I think only doing so in, in the desire to really celebrate the fact that her music is fantastic. I'm so pleased that we came across this and that we were able to, to record these pieces because they really are great. And as Lisa said, they've got such really interesting twists and turns. And also I think, as Lisa said, they kind of foreshadow a lot of stuff that, you know, we ascribe to people like Monteverdi, uh, the Secunda Pratica style with more emphasis on dissonance and interesting word painting. Um, like that amazing cadence at the end of Ego Frost Campi. Um, remember the one you pointed out to me, Lucy? Yes, where we were seventh away from each other. Which, which is about 20 years before, yeah, is very much like one of the big cadences in one of the, the Vesper Psalms in um, in the 1610 Vespers, in Monteverdi's Vespers, which is published by the same person, actually, the same Venetian printers as Raffaello's collection. And would it be, in, do you know how it would have been arranged in the chapels? Because presumably they faced each other in the chapel, no? At, at the performance context, I think, varied hugely um, between different churches and um, institutions and also um, between kind of liturgical performances and then, you know, sort of devotional ones, but outside of a strictly liturgical context. Um, but, yeah, sometimes in you know, opposing galleries facing each other, um, some churches 
were designed that way um, and the music then kind of evolved to facilitate that. So actually two of the pieces we performed, Legoflos Campi and Congratulamini, have this kind of double choir aspect to them where it's two separate groups of singers who respond to each other almost like a conversation. Uh, it's like a, like a dialogue um, passing the music between them. And that's um, style evolved in Rome particularly um, and in Venice because, um, well, I'm, I'm not quite sure it's chicken and egg, whether or not the galleries were built first and the music evolved to fit that or whether actually this style was evolving. And so they built the galleries to, to, to house the musicians. Um, and also I think because sonically it's very impressive if you have music coming from more than one place in the church um, and you can imagine as a congregant sitting yeah. there, yeah, and sort of hearing the music coming from all from sides. Above, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to ask the singers too. What What does it feel like to sort of be so immersed in something you're creating together? I, I ask this because connected to my earlier criticism of people writing too literally, um, I also think people write too much in the first person, <laughs> even though I do it myself. But, um, um, and I'm interested, more and more interested in the idea of losing the first person into some community of people. And I, so I want to know how it feels. I mean, if, if there's a moment where, as it were, you, you kind of lose that sense of yourself or, or do you have to, because you have to keep to the line of the music, you have to remain in yourself. I think there's definitely a balance of the two. You, you absolutely have to know where you are and, um, and think about how to express your individual line. It's also an absolute sense of we as a group creating this one thing together. I think the thing I most enjoy is when you are in that moment and you suddenly spot in the score that there's another part doing something that relates to your part, uh, whether it's an entry together or you're, um, you have echoing material, uh, or you're moving in contrary motion and you can make a, a visual connection with that person and then it's very much a we together and not so much of an I because uh, you're mm. you're communicating um, about how that should go as you do it and it's just glorious. <laughs> yeah I mean I would absolutely agree with everything Sarah's just said I think um there are there are always times when you're performing that it's possible to be distracted by outside things um, by being tired or being uncomfortable or by being nervous about getting everything absolutely right that you're singing and putting all of the right notes and the right rhythms in the right order and being in time with everybody else. But I think um, when it all comes together um, in these moments, I think a lot of musicians are constantly sort of thrill seekers who are looking for that transcendent point where everything suddenly fits and you can just, it's, it's like a meditation almost. Um, is that feeling of being in the space and expressing yourself with other people in a way that works? I mean, I think that we're living through such a time of isolation. I mean, a lot of the social media isolate people anyway because they force them to be so self-conscious, to be constantly making comments and sending pictures of yourself and so forth. And now in isolation, people are even more fenced in to this sense of self. Certainly, I have found in doing these projects, one of the things I'm, I'm most grateful for, um, you know, and I realised I missed the most, actually, was that sense of community in music making. One of the things that we're, we're sort of touching on is the idea of the internet and this virtual connectivity allowing us to really focus in on ourselves and look at how we appear and worry about how other people are perceiving us and 
maybe become too obsessed with that. And when you're in a room singing with other people, as Sarah said, we do have to be aware of what we're doing individually, but you're forced to pay really strong attention to everybody else in that room because you're waiting for that cue and you're waiting for that slight gesture that shows that we're going to try something different here or this is how we're going to speed up or slow down through that phase. And that means that you can't be that self-conscious because everybody is collectively trying to do something together and it breaks you free from the sort of the chains of mm-hmm. um, this, this virtual connection that everybody is, is having to rely on so much now. So I feel very, very fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was a bit nervous. I was going to get emotional during the first piece, but everything was fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it felt like uh, even though we'd had this huge break from doing it three, four months however long it was. As soon as we started singing together, that almost didn't didn't register anymore. And it was completely wiped away because we were getting to do the music making again. I think one of my favourite moments in rehearsals for this was actually the few, a few times when people just forgot to come in. So they had a few bars off and they just forgot to sing again because they were lost in the other parts and in listening to other people's voices. And... Um, I, actually, I did that on one of the takes for for the, one of the recordings. Um, I just forgot to come in because I was, yeah, I was absolutely lost in in the other parts and the beauty of it. Um, and I, you know, I think that with this genre of music, that's something you know that is so unique and and powerful. And I think also, I hope it's what we we tr- certainly try to, but you know, manage to convey to audiences to actually, you know to extend that kind of um, that feeling of being complicit in, in the music and extend that to, to them, to the listener as well. I suppose in some ways music making and choosing to be a musician could be viewed as a very selfish thing uh, and, and a self-indulgent thing to uh, kind of enjoy this, uh, this art and this beauty and being able to do that. Um, but absolutely, as you said, Rory, it's it's also about that connection with the audience and this idea that in some ways you are a vessel of communication uh, and communicating the the expression of the composer or the text that has been chosen. Uh, so again, it's another level of um, working together and creating something with with other people, um, be they there in the room or be they the person who's written the music down. Um, but it's it's absolutely about the the greater community. I don't think you're self-indulgent at all. I think <laughs> you're I think you're heroes. I mean, heavens above, you're being yeah. I mean, you're being impoverished by the minute. <laughs> so I think it's a vocation. Thank you all so much. It's been really, really fascinating. And I'm just, you know, I'm sorry, yes, we didn't have more time to get, we just sort of barely scratched the surface of some of these areas. So, um, but no, thank you. So, and thank you, Marina. I'm really, really interesting. And I, I've well, loved- thank you. It's lovely to meet you all. What? And to, listen, and to listen to you. I look forward to hearing. And I'm sure it will be absolutely beautiful and not, and not altogether pure. <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little bit of... <laughs> No, well, that's what we strive for, is a little bit more kind of sort of the humanity of it. Yes. 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 So that's the end of today's episode. 
Our new digital project, Cult, is available from the 27th of August, and you can stream it directly from our website, marionconsort.co.uk. It's very reasonably priced at 4 As always, you can follow us on social media using the handle at marionconsort. And please do leave us a rating and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. It all helps. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Thank you.